a podcast to honor the gods. This better come with a sacrifice. Dave X Media. Contend Capable acknowledges the indigenous people on the land on which we record this podcast, the Tarongarong people. We offer our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Content Capable, where if you're tired at 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, maybe you're gifted and talented. My name is Sam, I'm your host, and joining me today is Ethan. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Sam. Happy to be here. Um, Ethan, uh, we're here to talk about uh, being gifted and talented. Um, did you want to quickly share your gifted and talented story? Sure. Um, it feels weird. If I feel like gi- being gifted and talented is some sort of like weird trauma that we've all lived through, and uh, but then it also doesn't feel like it was real. Yeah, there. Uh, it, it might be different for you in uh, Australia versus me in the U.S., but um, when I was uh, practically as soon as I entered school. Um, both myself and like my teachers, my parents, they discovered that school was pretty naturally, I was naturally good at it. Like mm-hmm. anything that academia could throw at me, I'd be able to just tackle with no problem. So it became, um, it became paramount for, for them to like challenge me. And that's sort of what the, yeah. that's sort of what the gifted program is supposed to do is supposed to challenge, um, get, uh, Kids like me who were, um, you know, ahead of their peers. Uh, I was especially ahead in uh, in math. I actually, uh, mm-hmm. for for several years, uh, starting in sixth grade, going up all the way through high school, I was a year ahead in math of, of everybody else. Um, yeah. As well as like taking, um, I don't know what the Australian equivalent of an AP course is, uh, advanced placement. Basically, it's like a step above what a regular English or social studies or science class would be. Um, Just we've, we don't have AP courses, which is, I I don't know whether I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Like we have different grades of mathematics Mm -hmm. and that's about it. Everyone else, like the curriculum is very standardized. Mm -hmm. So there's like no really wiggle room. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was I was in those classes um, by choice uh, most of the time. The one exception that I did was my junior year of high school. I didn't take AP U.S. History because I was taking calculus, uh, and as a junior in high school, that was one of the hardest classes I've ever had to take. Um, but I, my brain was also also wasn't as fully developed as it is now. Um, yeah, honestly. I haven't used calculus since then, um, but <laughs> it's the greatest part about calculus is that you get you learn it. You spend so much time learning it and stressing about it, and then once you've done the the final assessment, you're like, "Well, I'm never going to use that again unless I go and study." I think the only time I've ever seen someone use it is in like a physics or a maths university course. Yeah, um, I mean, for for me uh, being a software engineer, there is potential. For me to use things like that, um, yeah. but for what I do now, it's not really applicable. Um, mm. But that's that's neither here nor there. Um, were you explicitly told you were in the gifted and talented course? Um, not at first. Um, I was I was eventually told. I believe in uh, in fourth grade they were like, "Hey, we've noticed how well you're doing." We're gonna move you up uh, in. At that time, it was just math. Um, but then, once I got into to middle school, then it became more subjects that I was. Um, that I was more inclined to. Uh, uh, to choose the the advanced option because. Mm. 
I have have always considered um, I'd always considered academia a a kind of a a puzzle, a challenge, something I need to overcome. Um, yeah, and it it became so much of my identity that once those experiences were behind me, I almost had a crisis of identity um, because without being in academia, where do I find my worth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is that weird thing. And I think especially for gifted and talented kids who are told, you know, you are so great and you, your kind of self-worth is tied to your grades not having someone constantly say you did well in the form of an A plus or you know uh, a high grade or you know being gone and doing special subjects with people older than you you don't then you know have that gratification hanging around yeah um, it, it was frequent that I'd interact with people who were older than me uh, doing these various subjects um but honestly, when I got humbled was when I got to college. Um, mm. Because my major is one of the hardest to take, um, I learned very quickly that things that worked for me in the past were not going to work anymore. Um, yeah. And college is where I ended up getting my first C as a semester grade, and that was not fun. Um, it honestly kind of broke me. Um, I was not. I was not very happy about that. Um, because mm. for the last 12 years, I know I'd had to work some at, at mm-hmm. school, but this was the first time that I really needed to think about, like, actually studying for tests. I didn't know how to do that until I got to college. I never had to. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a fascinating concept, and I think that what I find the massive difference between Australian education systems and US education systems um, is where grades become important. Um, and I think that, like... Because admittedly, the first C I got was also at university, and it really did kind of, you know, throw me around a little bit. But I also vividly remember ne- not receiving letter grades until seventh grade, uh, which at the time wasn't even considered high school because we only have, you know, primary school and high school. We don't have middle school. So it's about halfway through middle school and you're sitting um, and I, you know, was suddenly receiving letter grades um, instead of, you know, exceeding, like the the grade systems that my primary school had used was like exceeding expectations and, you know, at expectations or below, you know, expectations, which kind of was a letter grade system, but at the same time was very subjective. And you were sitting there, you know, and you wouldn't know that, like, if I had gotten, you know, exceeding expectations, was that, you know, the same as what it, you know, the person sitting beside me who was struggling in that class. Um, and it was, it was incredibly hard to kind of, I'm sure it was, you know, put into numbers somewhere in the back end, but it wasn't shown to myself or my parents. So mm-hmm. you, know, you didn't really get a chance to, to think about that. Yeah, for me, that was a lot earlier. Um, mm. I want to say, yeah, probably as early as first grade, um, because the extinct expectations part, that that was definitely a thing that happened during my, my kindergarten year, I believe. Yeah. And it may have changed in that time. I was in kindergarten in 2006, so um it's been 17 years. A lot of things can happen. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh American education prioritizes uh in my mind and several teachers I know, it prioritizes regurgitation of information and how well you're able to do that over critical thinking and problem solving. And that's what the gifted and talented courses were trying to do, but I don't know if they necessarily mm-hmm. got that point across. Uh, at least depending on the subject, yeah. it's like instead of how much information you're able to retain, well, it's can you retain more information as opposed to can you think outside the box with this problem? See, I almost felt like I had 
uh, a different like the way gifted and talented was defined for us was was different obviously you had high grades but at the same time it was like people who would be enriched by thinking outside the box so a lot of my gifted and talented the opportunities that we were given were opportunities to go and do you know extended thinking courses so we would go and you know like go on go and do this academic enrichment thing where all the academic enrichment kids from the region uh came and there was i vividly remember there was one thing of like they're like okay we're going to give you this list of instructions you know please make sure you read the list of instructions before you complete it and if you read through the whole list of instructions you would do nothing but all of us like kind of started do like doing what the instructions had told us to do and it was the whole thing of like thinking outside the box and uh we would do these massive like math problems that the whole country would do at the same time um and it was all about you know beyond you know regurgitating facts like logically how can you make this happen with you know the assumed knowledge that the curriculum required you at which i thought was very fascinating and yeah understanding versus like regurgitating obviously like i think there was a there was a part of like being able to regurgitate everything but at the same time it wasn't necessarily i don't know it sounds like for you it was especially about regurgitating in certain cases um especially when it came to uh classes like history and and mathematics um Less so in yeah. places like science and English, because I think that uh, gave more credence for creativity. Um, just yeah, because exactly. you know, science is all about experimentation. With English, a lot of things are up to the, they're subjective. So it, you know, there there were certain things that did allow for that. Um, I was also uh, a part of my my school district's uh, engineering program before I. Want to be a software engineer i want to be a mechanical engineer and um yeah. my district had built this brand new building we were bringing in kids from all over the district and other districts all consolidating to one place for the specialty program so there was an engineering wing there was a medical wing there was a culinary wing there were a bunch of different places that we could go um and uh, i i was for where I am in the United States, I went. I was in one of the richer districts, like one of the more well-off parts of town. So, mm -hmm. um, I think that definitely played a part in that, just based on um, what we were able to do, and that specifically allowed me to think outside the box a bit more. Because um, my senior year of high school, I took uh, the engineering capstone course, um, which is where. Um, a partner and myself were assigned a problem, uh, yeah. and we w were going to have to solve it in whatever way we thought would work best. So yeah. the problem we were given was that um, within the building, like I said, there was a culinary wing, and the head chef downstairs at the culinary, uh, the culinary academy wanted to... Um, grow some mushrooms for him to cook with because um, mm -hmm. one of the big things about that particular um, program is that they they grow a lot of their own food that they use raise a lot of their own livestock you know that sort of thing yeah so he wanted a, a sustainable way to grow mushrooms without having to worry about weather conditions or anything like that so uh, my partner and I came up with this little cart that you would place these logs on vertically they have uh, a sprinkler system, and basically kind of create a greenhouse on wheels um, yeah. to ease in transportation. Um, and they would, they would spritz with water at certain times of the day. Uh, that's where my expertise came in, uh, learning how to work with controllers and timed release and, and mm. things like that. And that, that was all very interesting. Um, and that's really the only time I felt like I was able to really think outside the box in a more mathematics setting um yeah but um but yeah that was that that was a big one uh, and i was i was glad i was able to uh, to have those opportunities available to me 
Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky that I was able to, because I know that there are a lot of, um, I know there's, I know there's lots more gifted and talented kids like myself who didn't have yeah. those resources out there. Um, it is, it, it's a really annoying thing of like the quality of your gifted and talented program def- depended partially on how, you know, well off the school and the district and the area was mm-hmm. to kind of be able to, you know, access these opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, now that I've had a chance to reflect on it instead of just being a part of it, um, I've, yeah, I've grown a lot in the more empathetic side since I finished high school and I can't help but think about kids who were similar to me in the way that they, you know, they, they're really academically intelligent and, um, you know, school is, you know, kind of boring to them. They want something, you know, something more, something that they can do yeah. more with. And they, just because of where they live, they don't have those opportunities. Um, yeah. And I, I really wish that it wasn't dependent on, uh, like, in the U.S.'s case, school funding is partially handled by tax revenue. Um, yeah. Property taxes. So the higher... Uh, the higher value a property has in higher value properties have in a given area, the more tax money goes into the school and the better and the more well off and more funds a school has. So, and that's where, you know, if you've got an excess of funds, you can run a really successful gifted and talented program or, you know, extracurriculars and bits and pieces as well. Yep. And I, I was very lucky to have both of those things. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's very fascinating. I find it really intriguing as well of like the way different. I, I don't know the way it was handled as well. I vividly remember. Um, it wasn't until the fifth grade that I was aware of the fact that I was quite far advanced. I'm guessing people had known since about the third grade that I was finding things a bit too easy um, and it was the fifth grade where I was really pushed I was put in a um, I think I was it was just the luck of the draw because the classes are kind of allocated fairly randomly but I was uh, stuck together with some very very incredibly smart people um, and it was about four of us I think um, from that class um, that we, you know, would be taken out and, you know, go and do things because they knew that we'd be able to catch up, you know, two lessons in the time it took to, to teach one. Um, and so we were able to go and do things like that separately. Um, it's hard to then, like, remove myself from other what could be considered academic enrichment but weren't academic enrichment things but like around the same time my parents had pulled the school aside and were like well quite clearly our child is not being challenged um we can't like how can you guarantee to us that this isn't going to continue where he's going to be bored in class you know through it was a a high all-inclusive school so it went all the way from um, kindergarten or prep or reception or whatever you call the year before the first grade all the way through to graduation it was a p to 12 school what we call in queensland and they're like how can you guarantee you know because we you know for high school you know he wants he should be challenged and they couldn't so that's where i i ended up moving schools um and was immediately put into the gifted and talented program but it was after testing and the testing wasn't an academic testing there was academic testing as well to kind of figure out placement and bits and pieces. But there was this patent test that we did, and I always forget the name of it, but whenever someone says it, I know exactly what they're talking about, where you kind of had to, like, like find the next thing in the pattern. And if you got high enough, you were considered um, gifted and talented, and so they would put you in the academic enrichment stuff. But then if you got even higher... They're like, we also will give you special support because there's a chance that, like, you are so high-functioning that you're going to struggle with, like, the regularities of classroom and assessment work. 
which my brother had. Um, so I got into academic enrichment. My brother got into academic enrichment and academic support. Um, and his twin didn't get anything, which he was always bitter about because he was just as smart as the rest of us. Wow. But mustn't have got like cleared the bar in this particular test. Um, but it was, it, and then so you know, high school academic enrichment for me was like separate days where you would go and you know do things that were completely beyond what the curriculum demanded. Uh, because Australia's curriculum is so strict, you don't get a chance really to do more or uh, do more than like what the curriculum requires you. Um, and so it was um, there was that, and there were you know other academic enrichment adjacent things for Australia, especially. It's definitely so much about maths and English. Uh, maths first, always maths first, um, and then science um, a little bit as well. But um, that my school was rich enough that they had a really great music academic enrich of uh, music enrichment course that they had started the year I had started the school, so I was involved in that as well, which really helped as well. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad um, that you were able to uh, to access things like that. I don't know for you was was it a concept of like being a big fish in a small pond, like you were like you were, you know, towards the top of your class and, like, there was, like, no really real way to go further up? Um, there were always people that were better than me. Um, Mm -hmm. like, um, I I won't name names, but there was one girl in particular that I was almost jealous of. Um, actually, I think I was jealous of her. I mean, we were friends, but (laughs) I was always jealous of how good she was at almost everything she did. Like, she was a varsity athlete. She was, you know, in these uh, gift in, in the gift and talent program with me. She, uh, she rode horses. She, you know, did all these things and was somehow good at seemingly all of them. She was a student council yeah. president. She was a valedictorian. Um, yeah, I there was there was a girl like that in my year level. She was um, the ducks of our grade every year except for the seventh grade where I think she tied for ducks or something um and like was an amazing musician was incredibly smart um valedictorian as well um what didn't take any leadership positions but like was quietly very successful in the background uh, and would refuse to tell anyone what grades she got either so you never knew like exactly what you were comparing yourself to it was kind of scary, and I definitely was incredibly jealous. Yeah. So, her in particular, um, I like. I liked her as a person, and I, I still do. We we talk somewhat, somewhat often. Um, yeah. But at the time, I just wanted to be as good as she was. Like, even though I was at a higher level than almost everybody else, I still wanted to be the best. Because, yeah. like, in in younger grades, I was. Like... Yeah. And, and when you think you are, you tend... Your, your perception becomes your reality. And mm-hmm. I... Like, people would come to me to, like, tutor them, in, in math specifically, like... Uh, like teacher I was basically a, a teacher's aide in some of my classes um yeah. helping the kids who were uh, a little bit further behind as far as like their understanding uh, of various concepts yeah, because yeah. you know th- they're just one person um they can't always you know get to every kid and that's that's unfortunate um mm. that they're not always able to do that because they're there are always going to be the kids who don't understand um and for a long time i wasn't sure if i would be able to explain things accurately to the kids who didn't get it because to me it was almost second nature like as yeah. almost as soon as able and to and i found that that was really hard because everyone assumes like because you're smart you're good at explaining how you got where you were like how you got you know how you got to that answer for that problem or something yeah and 
I struggled to articulate how exactly um, I was supposed to do these things to the kids who didn't get it because I just understood. It, I, it required no more thought for me. Um, but again, college humbled me. Um, and it, it ended up being me getting the help from other people who did know what they were doing. Did you, like, when you started college, did you think that you were going to be as successful as you were? Absolutely. Uh, so my, my first year of college, um, I was at a, a junior college. I don't know if you have those in Australia. Um, I don't think so. Okay. Um, at least from my understanding. Okay. But yeah, whatever. Um, for, for those who live outside the United States, uh, a junior college... Uh, is somewhere where you can get uh, what's called an associate's degree. It's only two years. Um, or in my case, you only go one year to get what's called your gen eds, general education classes. Um, and that was... Ah, okay, yeah. That that was super easy. And I was like, this is college? I can do this. Yeah. Little did I know what I was in for. Um, because after that, I went to... Uh, a state university, uh, which which every state in the United States has some sort of university. Um, yeah, there's at least one in every state, and I don't know if it's like that in Australia, um, but that's how it is there's in the United States. There's one in pretty much every major city. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it was much much harder there. Um, the the curriculum that I went through was a lot more rigorous than anything I'd ever done before. Um, yeah. I, I believe I read somewhere that it was the second or third hardest major in um, like the, uh, the Department of Engineering, which is what my degree fell under. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's including like mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, chemical engineering, civil engineering, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I it, I think that going from a like school isn't necessarily competitive. Like it is partially, but it isn't necessarily. And you don't you're all competing against yourself most of the time. And then you get to university, and it is incredibly like especially for classes like computer science or especially particularly challenging classes, I, I would argue that um, because we don't do general education beyond uh, school, so we once we finish school, you don't do any more general education. You only specialise. Um, we, like people who do optometry and nutrition and dietetics, and there's a couple of other courses, at least from my experience, that, you know, I incredibly, if you, like, if you fail, you're struggling, you're going to, you've got to put a huge amount more effort in to, to get back up to, um, where everyone else is at, uh, rather than, you know, otherwise you fall behind, like, basically permanently. But yeah, it was, like, it's incredibly hard to go from, I'm not finding this too difficult to, this is some of the hardest stuff I've ever had to do. That's definitely the case for me. Um, I don't know if you have grade point averages in Australia. Yes, we do. Yep. Okay. Um, love, love a sneaky GPA. Keeping mine above a five point five was probably the hardest thing ever. So <laughs> a seven for us, yeah. So uh, most of the time for the for the United States, it's out of four. Um, oh, whoa. Okay, yeah. Yep. So um, an A counts as four points for your GPA. A B counts as three. C is two. D is one. F is nothing. Yeah. Um, and I there's a pretty complicated formula to make grade point average, but um, throughout high school, my GPA was uh, because I was in the these advanced classes, my GPA could go up to five instead of four. Yeah. So my GPA was around four point two. You know, it was it was above what everybody else could do. Um, but, you know, not the absolute possible best. Yeah, yeah. In college, I struggled to keep my GPA at a 3.0 out of 4. 
That was yeah. a B average. Which, for somebody like me who is extremely motivated to, you know, be the best at whatever thing I'm doing, it was yeah. a little disheartening uh, at first. Um, especially like my first year at this uh, at the state university I was at. Uh, it was 2020, so yeah. it was quite a struggle. Um, like on top of COVID and being in a new city and um, doing things I'd never touched before for the most part, um, mm. trying to keep everything in line, just it was it was ridiculously hard. And um, I will say, thing I. Not that things got easier. I was just under able to understand where my weaknesses were better. Yeah. So I was able to articulate where I needed help better instead of saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Yes, yes. And, and ultimately, um, I think that's what what saved me because there were there were two different occasions where I I essentially talked professors into making into having me pass their class because I was on the verge of failing and that had never happened before college. Yeah, and it is scary to go from a it's fascinating I'm having a very similar conversation with my family on a kind of similar topic of like having never experienced being on the verge of failure um until you've become an adult and you've like moved out of home and you've you are studying and you're working towards, you know, a goal. And then all of a sudden, you know, the whole thing's in jeopardy because you're on the verge of failing this class that, you know, you you thought that you'd be able to keep on top of. Yeah. And I can still say that I never failed a class my entire 12 years of education. Because I didn't. But I got close. Twice. Both in college. I definitely, I definitely failed at least one assessment. Oh, I did too. Passed overall. But yeah, yeah, that was. We only um, really like, and this is the weird way that Australian Australian universities are so whack. There's a whole episode's worth of content on them, but um, Australian universities can only the the largest percentage you can have for like worth of your grade is fifty percent, like. An assessment can only be... Oh, no, not 50. can't be worth more than 60% of your grade, a single assessment. That's um, very so the way, high. It is very high. Often those 60% assignments or those 50% assignments were pretty capstone so there was lots of, like, little steps you had to do along the way. Okay. Um, but uh, because of that, you only realistically, for most academic subjects, do two assessments a, uh, a semester. Uh, and because you only take the class for a semester, you only, you know, only end up doing two complete assessments for these things. So it's a high degree of failure if you get something really wrong, um, which I think is why that, like, a pass is a much high, like a lower, a pass is a much lower bar to get over in, um, in other countries other than the US, um, because for us, a pass is 50%. If you get 50%, you pass. Um, and so, you know, as long as you tick 50% of the boxes, you are, you know, you can still, um, you know, make it out alive, basically. Um, but yeah, no, it's very, it's still very anxiety inducing knowing you've failed something and going, I need to pass this class overall because I really don't want to mess it up. Yeah. For most of the US, especially in higher education, the bare minimum you need to get is 60%. Because of my just, because of my major, my minimum was seventy percent. Why would a passing grade be different? On oh, okay, whatever. That that hurts my brain. Um, it doesn't. But I understand why. Like, obviously, it's a high bar to pass. Like, to like you want to say so, high bar to pass. So, but like, so, passes. So, we're also talking about passing classes. Sorry. Right. So sometimes what <laughs> my professors would do is they would adjust their grading scale mm -hmm. to where they moved the barrier of entry to get certain grades down. Because uh, at the end of the day, all that matters is the letter on my transcript. Yeah. So 
I had classes where a 60% was a C instead of a D. Yeah. Uh, which was great by me because it gave me more uh, more ability to do that. There was one professor that did that with all of his classes. Uh, this professor was from mm-hmm. was from Denmark. Very funny guy. So I think he's coming from more of that European education model where yeah. they are a bit more lenient. Um, and I was very grateful for that. Um, especially with with my major, like a lot of a lot of what happens in my area of expertise is always changing. Yeah. Um, like things that I learned in college may not apply 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think he understood that and he was able to kind of give us a break. But at the end of the day, he was just trying to teach us uh, more of the concept of things. Like a lot of his classes were more about the theory of computer science more than the actual, um, like the hard coding, more like the math behind computer yeah, science yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing, um, which I didn't always like, um, uh, even though um, from what my professors told me, the math department of my university uh, originally had computer science under that umbrella, and that's why it's a lot more theory-based stuff, at least in that particular curriculum. Instead of branching off of the computer yeah. engineering, which is more hardware-based. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's a whole I, thing. I found that as well. Yeah, no, it, it's the same for us. Like, I... So, at some point, I think about a year before I took journalism, the journalism degree got folded into a communications major, which had meant that, like, you had then no majors... Um, your major was journalism, um, mm-hmm. but it was kind of streamlined. So you took journalism units instead of often you take like a year of general, whatever your degree is. So usually you take about a year of comms units. We took a year's worth, we took a half a year's worth of comms units spread out over a year um, and immediately got stuck into the journalism um, stuff um, and like really got into like. And it was all general, like, making, like, getting the basics down pat. Um, and then, you know, my second and third years were experimenting and, and pushing beyond uh, with the understanding that, you know, like computer science, journalism is always changing. Um, as much as it doesn't look like it ever changes, I'm sorry, world, I promise, journalism is changing. I think it almost has to. Um Oh, yeah, exactly. Just because um, of the internet, a lot of the way people get their news has changed. And I think a lot of the older ways that journalism oh, yeah. used to work just don't anymore. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. And um, I don't really want to get political on the show about being gifted and talented. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, news sources that are more reputable here in the United States are behind paywalls. Um, oh, yeah. Which is unfortunate because um, a certain news network, I'm using air quotes here, um, I think you know which one I'm talking about, um, is free to access, which means the barrier of entry is lower to get uh, to get news from there and it makes it a lot harder for um people to get more accurate information um especially in this yeah. age of people just reading headlines basically well and that's that's the thing it's like you know and it, it kind of goes back to education because it kind of you know the amount of effort that you put in doesn't necessarily transfer to the amount of success theoretically you could have you know sure and i always i always envied the people who weren't in the gifted and talented programs and struggled with like learning concept because i never learned how to study like i had to teach myself how to study and even then i think i've gotten it so incredibly wrong because i just like i'm finding it i found it very hard through a lot of my university time because i didn't know how to study for an exam or you know, didn't know how to prepare myself to write an essay on a topic that I was completely unfamiliar on. Um, 
and it was very easy to kind of fall into despair, which I had already done through year 12, through a bit of a mental crisis I'd had. So, you know, doing it again through university felt like a, a step backwards, which was something I really didn't want to do. Yeah, um, I, I hear you loud clear on the despair part. Um, yeah. It's... Like I said before, it was very easy to let myself get sucked up into, you know, this is where I derive my worth from. Yeah. You know, how how much can I, like, how good can I do? And a percentage on a piece of paper determines how good I feel about myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I suppose looking beyond university you and i both are now working professionals correct Um, we like how how have you found now that you're beyond an academic space finding that that self-worth i've only been uh working in a professional capacity for about a month as of this recording so i don't know yet okay sorry (laughs) (laughs) so it's a it's an open book here on the on uh yeah because it's been fascinating. I've only been working for six months, so it's not been particularly long for myself either. But finding finding self-worth outside of the number that I was getting every six months at the end of the semester um, has definitely been a, a tough thing now that I am now like a full six-month semester um, out of university where I'm like, I'm not, you know, having people telling me I'm doing a good job or telling me exactly where I need to improve um, which I think is where to an extent in a lot of careers mentorship is so important as well yes and I'm lucky I'm lucky at my job that um, cooperation is encouraged between uh, mm-hmm. team members um, because uh, throughout a lot of my uh, throughout a lot of my academic career, especially uh, in college, a lot of the stuff that I did was on my own. Um, yeah. Basically, the professor had everybody do the same thing, and they graded how well you did. Mm-hmm. Well, now, uh, and some of this did happen the later on in college I got. Um, like, when I did my capstone course in college for... Uh, for computer science, so that was again on my own. I I made a website from the ground up in three months, mm-hmm. and um, having never done that before, so that was something. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, I'd done. Uh, I'd worked on websites that already existed. Uh, and that's actually what I do now. Yeah. I do uh, I do site maintenance. Like that's whole that's my whole job. Yeah. Um, it's maintaining sites that already exist. Um, but I never built one before. Um, so wow. there's a there's a lot of a lot of back and forth uh, between myself and the uh, the professor of a web development who happened to be the professor who was in charge of the course I was taking, which was very, very convenient yeah. for me. Um, yeah, no. And I was also able Always to. I was able also able to consult people for my internship because I was doing similar stuff there. Again, like I said, working on websites that already exist. Um. So. Uh, I didn't expect that I would end up working in web development like I do now. Um. Yeah. But. I was pleasantly surprised that I was able to do that as well as I was. Um. And I'm. Still learning so much. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know how familiar you are with computer languages and how they work. Um, I can give it my best shot. Okay. Um, so in, in web development, there are three major uh, languages. There's HTML, there's CSS, and there's JavaScript. So HTML, that if you think of a website like a person, right? HTML, that's the skeleton. It's the 
quite literal bare bones of the website. It's the it's the text elements, the links, the pictures. Like if you see uh, like the like how people used to build websites like back in the early two thousands, that was mostly just yeah. HTML. Doesn't really look yeah. very aesthetically pleasing. JavaScript, yeah, exactly. That's like the muscles. It makes things faster. It um, you know does a, a lot of heavy lifting, so to speak. Uh, when it comes to loading things in and, and things like that. And then you have CSS, which is um, what I think of as the uh, the face, the appearance of the website. That's where you get into more modern-looking websites, uh, especially with things like um, like Squarespace, where you can make your own websites. Um, yeah. A lot of that is based on uh, CSS templates and how those look. Um so I already had a pretty basic understanding of all that stuff, but now I am learning so much more about it than I used to, even through my internship, and I did some stuff with that. Um, there's also a, a language that I use called uh, PHP, which works with HTML to do uh, to communicate with certain things on the server, and it's a it's a whole thing that I could go into, but I don't really think I need to. Um. um. Do do you find that like working on those kind of projects without an without an academic like uh, I always find like an academic deadline or an academic rubric that you're working with do do you find that that what do you find the difference between the two is there's a lot more wiggle room as far as uh, creativity goes even in even in my world of site maintenance where a lot of times they're just saying add this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes I know what they want. Sometimes they don't. Um, Like I'm working with clients that are all over the country. So, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm working with people who work at my company who talk to those people who are over the country. Um, So they're communicating with the client and rewriting those, um, requests to me i'm doing my best to make it look the way they want um sometimes they do know what they want sometimes they leave it up to me sometimes i have a better idea it really depends um and i I do have deadlines that there are certain things i need to get done by certain times um Mm -hmm. but oftentimes it really just matters like are you able to get something done and if not, they'll. It's not a one and done deal. Like it's not. It's not like yeah. school where like, you hand in something. This is how you did. You can't do it again. There's always yeah. improvement to be made with my job. Um. So if I hand something yeah. off to. Uh, if I hand something off to one of my coworkers to look at and present to the client, and they're like, "Oh, the client wants this too." I'm like, okay, I'll do that. It's not just a one and done deal. So in my in my mind, it's more forgiving. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. Um, even though I feel like I'm submitting an assignment every time I hand in an article for my editor to read, because I'm still what they call a cadet, which means that I'm still you know being monitored quite closely because no one trusts anyone um, in the media landscape. We love it, um, well, but that's not entirely your fault. No, it's not. No, not at all. Uh, and it's it's a good thing because it's caught a lot of issues that I have. But at the same time, like, I feel like I'm handing in an assignment and I can't change anything. And then this week, as of recording, you know, I was writing a story about a music camp and I uh, went and oh, I had to go get photos. And then all of a sudden, another source came through the work and was like, hey, we'd love to chat about this music camp. Um... And so, you know, the day that we normally assign things to go to print, I'm, like, sitting there going, okay, I'm going to add these lines in from this source. Um, and it was, it felt kind of amazing to be able to, like, customise it right down to the last. And for me, there's still, a, like, an actual deadline of, like, this is past the point of no return. But, you know, there's still things I can customise all the way through to the end, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's... In a certain... In certain aspects, the way I do my job is, like, you know the saying of, like, art isn't finished until the artist says it's done? Mm 
Yeah. That's a lot of what my job is like. Yeah. It's, um, and I think that, like, I think it's a lot of careers, and we forget that, like, and it's fascinating, the art influences that our day-to-day lives kind of have, you know, on us, because, you know, we're always taught that, like, an employer would never accept that, or, you know, once you hand something in to someone, you're never going to get it back, you know, and that's that's basically reinforced with the academic system we're given, um, and then we we enter the real world, we realise that it's a very progressive process, um, you know, iterative process is probably a better word to describe it, you know, we're not sitting there, and this doesn't just go for journalism and computer science, this goes for all sorts of careers, where you're constantly refining the answer you have to a question, or um, the process that you've developed, or the solution that you're proposing, uh, until it, you know, fits as best it can, uh, and, and acknowledging that, you know, nothing is going to be a perfect answer either. Yeah, and if I were to sum up my job in two words, it would be always improving, because that's yeah. all I'm doing, is improving things that are already there. Uh, eventually, I think I'll be able to make new things, but at least for right now, um, a lot of what I'm doing is just making improvements to things that already exist, and... For someone who is fresh out of college, I think that's probably one of the better things I could be doing. It's, a, I would say it's like a good reset. It's a good hot mental, like a, a mental break from striving for perfection, which is what academia basically requires you know us to do, and being told that you can achieve a perfection, um, and struggling to, especially through you know university and college. Um, and then you enter the workforce and it you realize that it isn't, you know, you're not going to necessarily be creating something, you know, you're, you're solving iterative problems rather than, you know, define a solution for X and don't think about anything else. It's a hard, it's a hard adjustment, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. Um... And I was, that's why I was very glad that I was able to do my internship. It gave me a window into more of what I would be expecting um, when I entered the workforce because, um, you know, there, there, there's always going to be something else that somebody wants you to do. Um, you know, it, for me, it's like, oh, add this button here or. Uh, make this link a different color or change the functionality on this page and uh, make this certain thing do uh, something different than it does now. So there's never really a, a stopping point. It's always it's always evolving and it's a lot it's a lot better in my opinion in the way that it's not final. Yeah. Like, like in academia, you always have a, a final assessment. Hmm. It is. I think that the finality of academia stresses people out, and especially myself, who went from, you know, uh, being very, you know, finding things coming to me very easily and not really struggling as much as I thought I was going to, to, you know, struggling and, and trying hard um, as a burnt out, gifted and talented kid, it was a very, it's a very nice change to go from that to going, nothing I do is necessarily final. Yeah. And I learned in college that I don't necessarily always need to strive for perfection. Hmm. We have a saying here in the States, and I don't know if it carries over to Australia, especially in harder... Um, in harder majors like mine and engineering in general, is that C's get degrees because oftentimes doors open doors is ours. Gotcha. So it, it is for like the the middle of the four is your passing GPA? grade. So okay. three, yeah, your three is your low fail, and then 
Um, you two is your... Yeah. Anyone who gets a three usually gets an opportunity. There's a whole other thing where you can get an opportunity to kind of, like, save your grade a bit, which is a funny, funny concept in the university system. Okay. Yeah. So... Anyway, sorry. Yeah. that Those are words that I lived by for... For probably the last three years. Uh, mm-hmm. Until a couple of months ago when I graduated from college. Yeah. As of this recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think on that note, thank you so much, Ethan, for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to chat to you. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so people can find me, uh, I mostly do Instagram now. Um, I'm on threads too, because, uh, you know, I need to fiddle the Twitter void now that yeah, that's gone down the toilet. Um, same handle for both of those uh, at ethan.t.hulen. That's H-U-L-E-N. My name will probably be in the title of this episode. So if you look that up, you'll be able to find me. I mostly repost other people's stuff. Sometimes I'll have a, a thought here and there, but I mostly observe. Nothing too, nothing too crazy over there. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and has there been anything that you've been reading, watching, listening to, playing that you wanted to uh, plug? Uh, I'm going to plug The Bear uh, on Hulu, if anyone is uh, interested in that. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, you actually know this person, uh, they got me uh, into that show um, because as a, a hobby of mine, I really like to cook. I love to... Uh, it's it's a way for me to get my my creative side going and have experiment with things and you know because my job is so logical I need a place to express creatively and that's the way that I do it so watching other yeah. people do it at such a, a higher level than I do is uh, is really entertaining to me so yeah exactly exactly um, uh, awesome well um, you can find me at sam journalist on Instagram and on TikTok. You can find me on Twitter. I'm just not going to tell you where. Um, it's there. Um, I don't know. I, I'm holding out. Um, I think journalists will be the last to, to leave Twitter in droves. Um, but um, I'm also... Um, you can find the podcast at content, the letter N, capable um, on Instagram as well. Uh, check it out there. More memes and videos are plenty coming. I'm going to plug this week a concept. Um... Catching the train instead of flying. I think I've plugged something similar before. Um, But I recently... So I live two hours away, a two-hour drive away from Melbourne, which is the biggest city by landmass in the country. Um, And I live an eight-hour drive away from Sydney, which is the biggest city in the country uh, by population. Uh, And living between the two, there's a railway line that runs between them. Uh, and so instead of driving to an airport, going through security and flying, I caught the train. It was about equivalent price for me, I think, for most people who pay more for flying than I do. Um, uh, it would probably be cheaper, and it is. It's most of the time it's cheaper catching the train. And it was really lovely. I caught the train. It was like 9 o'clock at night. I got into Sydney at like seven o'clock in the morning and yes i was absolutely exhausted but like i then had a whole day like i was dropped off in the middle of the city had a whole day to do whatever i want and then um i caught the train back on like a sunday night and rocked up um in the town with the railway station closest to me at 5 a.m in the morning and was able to rock up to work so i felt like i had a full weekend away instead of um uh, instead of like uh, having to fly somewhere and all the security and bits and pieces that you have to go through. Uh, I wish we had better rail in the US than we do. It's Look, tragic. Your rail is a mate. I, I rock up to the US and I'm like, I want to catch the nearest train I can find because it's better than Australia's. So um, our city, like our, our city public transport's great, but between towns and cities in the country, not, not at all. That's about where it. that's about where I am. Um, yeah, like uh, in the biggest city closest to where I live, there's 
there's streetcars that go around. Yeah. Um, and, and public buses and things like that. But, um, like, we don't have, like, in the U.S. we have Amtrak, which can go between cities, but that's mostly on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wish that Amtrak would expand to do, like, out to the Midwest where I am and yeah. out to the West Coast, but that's neither here nor there. We can always fight for a, for a bit more. I, I definitely think that, I don't know, there's, there's definitely moves to, to further invest, which I'm really hoping for. Sorry. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much, Ethan, for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to chat. Thanks for having me, Sam. Content and Capable was recorded, edited, and produced by Samuel O'Brien. You can follow the podcast at Content, the letter N, Capable on Instagram, and you can find it on Facebook. You can also send an email through to contentandcapablepod at gmail.com with any of your thoughts, queries, or concerns. The best way to support the podcast is to leave a review on your preferred podcatcher so more people can hear the podcast. The art was done by Opia, and the music was written, edited, and produced by Jason Hilton. Content and Capable is proud to be a part of the Deus Ex Media Network, where you can find a podcast for any of your nerdy interests. We are... Not the Crystal Gems. We are the Bits. The Bits, the Bits, the Bits. A Steven Universe Review Podcast celebrating the 10th anniversary of a show that's very near and dear to our hearts. So get ready to cry with us. And try our best not to sing. As we rewatch one of the gayest shows of the 2010s. New episodes coming out to you every Friday. Featuring your favorite host, Charlie. And Robert. Thank you for listening to Content and Capable. Don't forget to rate and review. And we'll see you next week for another episode. Media.